Spooks with Denzel Myrick and Douglas Skelton. Hi there, Douglas Skelton coming at you down the podcasting ether. I've got my sop with camel idling outside on the airstrip. I've got my leather flying jacket on. I've got my white silk scarf jutting out at a jaunty angle. And yes, that means I'm flying solo for this particular edition of Spooks. S-B-O-O-K-S. My regular co-host Denzel Myrick is somewhere that is else, doing something that is very big and very important, he told me. But fear not, it won't just be me doing a monologue. I have a guest for you. Neil Broadfoot is a fabulous Scottish author. Well, he's a Scottish author, he insisted on the fabulous himself. And he's got a great new book coming out called No Quarter Given. So I thought it would be a good idea to have a wee chat to him. Now, full disclosure, Neil is a friend, although I use that term loosely. He's also one quarter of Four Blokes in Search of a Plot, which is a a panel game show I take part in along with uh, Neil, before mentioned Neil, and fellow authors Mark Leggett and Gordon Brown, otherwise known as Morgan Cry when the creditors are after him. Right, let's not have any more ado, not that I've done much ado-ing up until now, and let's have a wee chat to Neil. Hello, Neil, and how are you? I'm absolutely wonderful, Douglas. How are you? Sounds like you've had more than one cup of coffee this morning already. I have had, I have had an ample sufficiency of caffeinated substances. Thank you very much. It's very no kind of you to problem. notice. There's no such thing as an ample sufficiency of coffee. <laughs> so here we are on Spooks, and you have a new book out. You want to tell us about it? I do. No Quarter Given is out on the 9th of November. It is the fourth in the Connor Fraser series, which is set in Stirling, and this time it goes to Edinburgh and other places. Um, And this time I'm putting Connor through the mill even more than normal. Um, It's a kind of chase thriller where something happens. I won't tell people what it is, um, but something happens which sets Connor on the trail of Polly King, who is Duncan McKenzie's right-hand man. Duncan is Jen's dad, the Jen being Connor's girlfriend. Um, and it turns into a bit of a kind of chase conspiracy thriller um, and goes to some pretty twisted places. And it also features, this one, features some old faces from a previous series with Doug McGregor. Mm. I always find it's good to have something happening in a thriller, don't you? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the people who have read this one already have have not accused me of being slow. With it. <laughs> None uh, of your books are ever slow. I've got to say that. As much as I I, I do slag you off, and I do, uh, and indeed probably will. Um, None of your books, it's not something that you can be accused of as, as having a, a writing a slow book. They are always, you know, very, very fast paced um, with some gut wrenching action. Uh, and this one, it's, it's, it's a bit more personal for, for Connor, isn't it? Yeah, um, without giving details away, although it's in the blurb, so I might as well. It starts with Jen getting run down um, outside the gym that Connor is known to frequent that she works at. Um, and he initially thinks that it's just a tragic accident, a hit and run, that's it. And he's led to believe that there's more to it than this. 
and this leads him on this hunt to try and find out who really did it and why. Um, and as he goes, he kind of peels back the layers of certain people's lives and stuff and learns some pretty interesting stuff mm -hmm. along the way. Um, so yeah, but, but as for the speed, it must be all this coffee that I'm drinking. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all it can be because you, you are, of course, uh, teetotal uh, or coffee total, aren't you? <clears throat> I am coffee total. This is decaffeinated coffee I'm drinking right now, actually. Oh, oh, decaf now. And if you believe that, I've got a really nice bridge across the fourth that I can sell you for a knockdown <laughs> price. <laughs> so, four books in. Um, mm. uh, is it getting any easier? God, no. You know what it's like. Um Every book comes with its own unique challenges. This one, obviously, with lockdown and COVID, and do you reflect COVID in the story? Do you make it front and centre? Do you make it a bit in the background? Everything. But no, no book. And I don't think, to be honest, I don't think books should get easier as you write them. I think if they got easier, you're doing something wrong because you've got to challenge yourself with each book and learn something new and go that little bit further. And I think if it was easy, you would just be dialing it in and you'd be doing yourself and your reader a disservice. Is it you're, you're a lot further down the path than me. So what do you think? Have you yeah, well, you uh, sorry? How many books are you in now? Oh, hang on. I need, to take my I need to take my shoes and socks off. Oh, fiction books. Um, um, I, I, actually, I've lost count. Uh, four, five, six, seven... Uh, eight, nine, ten. I think I'm on to my. I think I'm. I'm now writing my thirteenth. I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, unlucky for some. Is, <laughs> is there anything at all about it that's getting easier? Um. Oh God, I wish I could. I suppose the not getting easier, but the thing that's not diminished is that the, once you get the ball rolling, the desire to get back to it and tell the story. The desire to explore what, because as you know, I never plot or plan. I have no idea what's going on. I sit down and I go. I've got a general idea and I go. So I think the thing that it's not getting easier, but it's not diminishing, is the desire to sit down and tell the story and figure out what's going on and deliver a good read you know, for the readers. Whether that's getting easier, I don't know. Whether I'm getting more disciplined, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, you like being disciplined, I've heard, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> what about, I mean, what is your writing routine? Um, well, I don't really have a routine because I'm, you know, I'm not a full-time writer, unlike some part-timers who might be interviewing me at the moment. <laughs> um, I, I've still got a day job, so I kind of write when I can. I tend to find that the best writing for me comes more or less in the evening. And I think that's because I spent so many years on the news desk in newspapers that if I was doing the overnights for the next day and doing the night desk, my working day started at three o'clock. Edition was at six. So, you know, your, your head, sorry, edition was at seven. So your head would kick in at that point. So seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, those are kind of like peak working hours for me. Mm -hmm. So that's it. But I really don't have a, a steadfast routine where it's, you know, 9 a.m. up, 9.15 coffee, 9.30 at computer. It's just I'll squeeze in time when I can. And obviously, the closer I get towards the end of the book, 
the more time I spend um, at the computer. Mm-hmm. Normally, because I've left myself too little time between, you know, finishing the book and deadline. Yeah. Just to explain, you you were a journalist be- before. Yeah, I worked at the, the. I worked basically. I was a sub editor plus mm-hmm. a night news editor, foreign editor, deputy news editor. Basically, I was the Swiss Army of Swiss Army knife of um, the Scotsman. Yeah. So I basically did a, a whole plethora of roles there. Yeah, and so you're 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 not doing that now, but it, it, you were there when you had the notion for your 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 first book, didn't you? I um I got into journalism because I wanted to write. I've always wanted to be a writer. And one day you will. <laughs> and there was me thinking you'd actually said something nice about me earlier on. That was just the softening up sucker punch. It's a weak, it's it's a weak moment. It's old age. I actually wrote my first book, um, which was Falling Fast, um, when I was working for the Edinburgh Evening News. And I arranged it that I had a couple of weeks where they had two shifts at the Evening News. You had the morning shift, which was the edition shift. So you started at half seven, it was, and worked till half past three. And you got the morning papers out. And then you did the overnights, which was three till 11. So I organized a couple of weeks of doing the early shifts on edition so I could go home and write the book. And that was how Falling Fast was born. Mm-hmm. But how did you get the idea? Where did that notion come from? Um, basically, I was hacked off. I desperately wanted to write a book and get published because I, I made a promise to my grand that I would dedicate my first book to her and I couldn't get published. And it was driving me absolutely insane trying to you know, break through so I was working at the Scotsman. I went for a walk. It was a beautiful summer's day. And I looked up at the Scott Monument and all these people sitting having their lunch below the Scott Monument and milling around the gardens. And in my dark mood as I was, I thought, I'm going to throw a body in amongst you lot and see what happens. And that was it. That was all I had was that thought of a body landing and the kind of chaos and panic that would ensue from that. So I wrote that. And then that was it. I just kind of followed the story from there. But I had no idea what the story would become at that point. And just to clarify for the sake of, of, of the listeners, the Scott Monument is a, a very eye-catching Victorian edifice on Princess Street in Edinburgh. That's, that's in, uh, is it Waverley Gardens, it's called? Yep. Um, and it's, it's, it's massive. Uh, this this thing so and the other point I want to clarify uh, listener is that he was not actually talking about physically himself throwing a body into the crowd this was in his story my lawyers thank you yes. for that clarification <laughs> so that was the first book falling fast how long did that take you to to, to write uh, the first one was feasibly quick all in I must have written it oh. It must have been about three weeks to a month, the first draft, right. because I put myself, I gave myself an insane deadline by painting myself into a corner. And this so was while have... you were, I was going to say gainfully employed, but it, you know, as journalism. Um, <laughs> so it's while you were employed, you know, by the newspaper, you did this in three weeks, three weeks to a month. Yeah, yeah, because I, I basically, I got so hacked off about not being able to make this promise happen for my grand or my grand's memory more accurately, that I just painted myself into a corner where it had to be done by that timescale. So it was a case of get up, go to work, come home, 
sit for half an hour and then I'd be sitting at the desk for feasibly long hours, go to bed, get up, do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, to be fair, the book that is on the shelves is not that book. Obviously, no, of that course was not. No. no, there's a whole process but, to go through, yeah. Yeah, the first draft took three weeks a month. And how long did it take you to, to find a publisher for it? Well, what happened was it was 2014 and I got, I was asked to submit because I was an unpublished writer to the Dundee International Book Prize, uh-huh. as it was, which is no longer there. But I submitted to that and I was shortlisted for that. That then caught the interest of our former publisher, Contraband, um, which was a spin-off of Saraband Books. Um, they offered me a three-book deal, so it got published in 2014, and that was it. I was away at the races. I published a book a year since then. So there were three in that series? Yeah, there was Falling Fast, The Storm, and All the Devils, which is on a 99p Kindle deal at the moment, as I recall. Um, but yeah, there were three in the... Nice little bit of self-advertising there. There, was a, there were three in the Doug and Susie series, and I was writing the fourth. I was quite happily writing away the fourth when I went to Stirling, went to the football match at Bloody Scotland between the Scotland and England crime writers, and I had the sudden idea that I could dump a body there, and Connor was born from that moment. Yes, I well remember that day I was there. I think it was my body you were thinking about dumping, actually. <laughs> so... <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so this, uh, no quarter given, this is the, the fourth, Connor? Yeah, it is indeed. And... Um, you know they are they are pretty they are tough. Let's let's be perfectly honest about it. They are you know they're very very tough thrillers. Yeah, is that the sort of thing you like to read as well? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you are a reflection of what you enjoy, and you know I like the hard boiled crime and um, the, the crime movies and you know Rankin and. Banks and everybody like that. So oh, I suppose oh, Mr. That. Mr. Rankin to you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm actually you can't see me because the camera's off, but I am actually on bended knee when I mention that name. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I suppose, but it's just that I've always wanted something, whether it be film, book, whatever. I want the narrative to grab you by the scruff of the neck and pull you into the story right through to the end of it. So I guess that and. Partly, again, because I don't plan and I don't plot. I'm writing quickly so I can understand the story as well. And hopefully that comes through, you know, in the narrative, which is probably why they are tough and kind of quite hard-boiled, because I'm not messing around. I'm stripping everything down to get the story told. Yeah. If you are what you like, I am a plate of chips and egg, which does kind of explain a lot of things. So, I mean, you mentioned there that you don't plan... You are what we call a pantster, aren't you? Yeah, I've been called worse, but yes, I am. I, 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 you know, if for me, a book is a puzzle that you're trying to work out for yourself and you're trying to figure out the story that your subconscious or whatever it is is trying to tell you. And if you sit down and work out the puzzle or do the jigsaw, as it were, once, why would you then go back and do it again. You've solved the puzzle. You've done the kind of Sherlock Holmes thing of he's consumed by the case. Then he solves it. Why would you go back and do it again? And for me, 
planning it and plotting it out just kills it kills the impulse to get back to the computer and write the story and i think that stephen king calls it writing in cold blood if you write something that you've planned for me you're writing in cold blood if you're writing something with no safety net and you don't know where it's going to go you've got that kind of heat of the chase and that gives you a narrative drive and a narrative edge that i don't think i could get with planning What's the, the thing about writing that you least enjoy? <laughs> writing. Uh, no. yeah. yeah, putting <laughs> words together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I, I don't... I think the writing process is solitary by its nature. So that's, you know, that's never a fun thing to go and lock yourself away and just basically play in your own thoughts for hours on end. Um, but... I think there's a certain discipline there. There's a certain loneliness of the actual act of writing itself. But I think what you get from the process of having written, and we've spoken about this before, you get more than that than you do from the temporary pain of sitting there going, right, you know, the, the imposter syndrome of, oh God, can I do this again? Or getting 60,000 words in a book and going, what the hell am I doing and where have I gone? Yeah. That kind of pain as it were that psychic pain the payoff for that is having actually written a book and getting it in your hands and getting people saying nice things about it saying they've enjoyed it mm-hmm. yeah the, the the loneliness of the long distance writer it's um sitting in a room uh, on your own talking to people listening to people who don't actually exist um, yeah. it's, it's a kind of strange, uh, strange occupation that, that we follow. And I think it was Dorothy Parker that said, I, I, I don't like writing, I like having written. Yeah, um, I've heard that one, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the flip side of that is, though, you don't like writing, you like having written. But there's always that moment where the sweet spot kicks in, where you put something together unexpectedly and go, oh, that's quite good. Or the book comes alive or a character talks back to you or something happens and it startles you and surprises you and interests you. And that's the point that I love is when you go, oh, that's good. That kind of lightning rod moment that you get when you're writing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Happens now and again, mostly. <laughs> I, I'm reading what I've written and say, oh, this is utter crap. So... <laughs> It is. Um, People always do that because the act of writing is basically a close-up act. If you mm -hmm. think about it, you're sitting there with your own thoughts on a page for months on end in this little kind of microcosm where you're basically six inches from the screen. The process of having written is when somebody pushes the screen away from you and you get a bigger view of what you've done. Because mm -hmm. I remember your last one, Rattle of Bones, you kept on saying it's shite, it's shite, it's the worst thing I've ever written. Sorry, I'm allowed to swear. Yes. It's the worst thing I've ever written. Sometimes we even go really mad and say things like Denzel Nyack. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, can, you know, you were saying right throughout that process, you were riven with self-doubt of it's the worst thing I've ever written. It's crap. It doesn't hold together. It doesn't work. And then I got hold of it, looked at it, and thought it was some of your best work. But that, when you're kind of trapped in that, thought bubble almost the self doubt does come in mm -hmm. and that's why you need other readers to kind of come in and say right no it's okay you've done this right or have you thought of this or that yeah. or or you know you haven't done it right as case maybe uh 
I was just too kind to tell you that old man. Yeah, I know, I know. So what what would you say that your particular rules to writing are? Rules? Yeah. Um, I don't think, I don't think I have any hard and fast rules. I think the the one, well, I suppose I do. Um, As you said, I write pretty hard edge stuff and I can write fairly viscerally and gruesomely when the mood takes me. But my rule is that that's only if it serves the story. I'm not interested in, you know, self-gratifying torture porn or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. If somebody gets shot, that's a violent and distressing and life-altering moment. And you need to reflect that in the book. But if you're reflecting that in a way that is basically purely gratuitous, I'm not interested in that. So that's a hard and fast rule. I'm not interested in exploitation. I'm not interested in stereotypes. So another rule is that even if a character is doing something that is utterly abhorrent to you in normal society, it makes sense to the character. There's a reason why they're doing it. And it makes sense with their own, no matter how corrupted and screwed up and perverted it is, it makes sense to their own internal narrative. Because at the end of the day, the nastiest person alive is doing the right thing in their own twisted mind. And that's a rule I've got. Don't do, you know, don't use stereotypes or cliches. Or cliches, sorry. Would be another rule. Yeah. Because you know Elmer Leonard's um, 10 rules, I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, and it's, it's something that, that, that I actually want to discuss with Denzel in a future uh, episode of Spooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, we all have... <sighs> We all have things that we like to do or, or don't like to do. But is there anything in writing that you wouldn't do? Is there anything you wouldn't touch? Is there any anything at all like that? I don't know is the simple answer to that question because, again, going back to my previous rule, I will only touch on a subject or explore something if it serves the book and the story that I'm telling. If I'm doing it gratuitously, you know, no way. Um, I suppose everybody, you know, being a dad myself, the whole issue of kids is something that I would naturally shy away from. But again, unfortunately, we live in a world where that happens. You know, um, the whole thing that is said about you can kill as many people as you want. If you kill an animal in a book, the readers will come and hunt you down. Yeah, There's that as well. But again, if that was to serve the story truthfully, maybe. The simple answer is, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to ever sensationalise anything and I wouldn't ever want to trivialise anything with the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything... <clears throat> so it's, it's crime thrillers that you write. Is there any yeah. other kind of genre that you would like to step into? I mean, I could just well, see Neil Broadfoot writing a romance. <laughs> <laughs> A very dark and twisted romance, maybe. Um, Well, I actually owe my oldest friend, after saying all this about not sensationalising stuff, I actually owe my oldest friend a horror story. Um, Mm. I grew up with my pal Joe, who's a graphic designer who did the covers for the first three uh, Doug McGregor books. And he also devised the logo for uh, Four Blokes and Cetera Plot, didn't he? He did indeed. Multi-talented chap. Um, which is probably why he's now living in America. Um, however, 
when we were growing up, we used to watch a lot of horror films and read a lot of Stephen King and stuff. And the challenge used to be that I would write a story that was creepy enough to scare Joe. And I knew I'd got it one night where he ran down the street from my house, bouncing from light post to sorry, from lamppost to lamppost, so he wasn't in the darkness. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like a moment of, yeah, I've got that. But I owe Joe, I promised Joe that I'd write him a horror novel. And I've just got not, not got around to it yet. But if I go anywhere else, it'll probably be a horror novel. Yeah, you think so? Do you think you will do it? Timing permitting, I mean, I'm on, you know, I'm on a contract to deliver another corner and then I've got standalones in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I get the time, yeah, I will, because it's something that I, it's an itch I want to scratch. Because mm-hmm. I think it would be an interesting challenge as a writer as well. How about yourself? You've, I mean, you've touched on historical, contemporary, nonfiction. Tell me there's a Douglas Skelton, Mills and Boone novel in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all set to do a bodice ripper. And then I might write a book. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's another corner coming. So you're writing that just now? Yes, I am. I'm in the midst of that at the moment. Okay, Wait, what's it yeah, called? It is called Violent Ends. Right, um, so so you're you're ditching the because all the corners up until now have had the word no in the title, haven't they? Yeah, they have, and that is by no means excused the pun. That was by no means intentional. It was just one of those things that happened. And I was sitting speaking to my editor Christina one day, and I said, oh, "By the way, did you notice that all of them? It just kind of suddenly hit me that they all had no in them, mm-hmm. no man's land, no place to die, no quarter given." Mm-hmm. Um, you're just, you're, you're just annoyed that James Bond has nicked your idea, haven't you? <laughs> what, Doctor No? Uh, no, No Time to Die. Is that not, a, is that not the, the... It's No Time to Die. I'm No Place to Die. Yeah, yeah, but it's still got uh, No in the Apart from Doctor No, it's still got No in the title. I was there first. I think they've looked at your books and said, you know, we're quite like this idea. We'll, we'll go for that as well. Well, it's funny enough because Helen Field's lovely woman that she is, um, she described No Quarter Given as where Bond meets Bosch. All oh, right, okay. She is, she is very nice, Helen. She's, she is. She, she's been on this this podcast. And how's her therapy going for the trauma? <laughs> Have you heard from her since? Or is she too heavily medicated to talk? <laughs> well, she's running away to Belize, so I think the experience must have been... <laughs> <laughs> must have been a bit, <laughs> bit too much for her. Not me, I don't think. I think it was having to speak to Denzel, but I can understand that. Oh, all right, okay, yeah. So we've got another day. Uh, you know, so are you contracted for one more? Have you got any more after that? Or are you going to move on to the, the standalones, um, do you think? I've got a contract to deliver one more Connor at the moment, and then mm. we'll see where we take it from there. I mean, I've got more ideas for Connor. I've got mm. another at least three Connor books churning around in the back of my head. Um, but I've also got a couple of standalone ideas um, that I want to kind of explore as well. And then obviously there's this, the potential for the horror novel. So there's mm-hmm. plenty out there. It just, it just depends on what happens next. Yeah. And the fight scenes, because the fight scenes are pretty grueling in, in yeah. the books. Um, uh-huh. and, and, you know, I, I know you to be a very, very gentle person. <laughs> Zen-like in your equanimity. <laughs> Uh, to the world <laughs> I mean how do you do these fight scenes I mean, how, where, where do you get this this brutality uh, from 
again, I, I mean, I suppose part of it is an upbringing of watching 80s action films. Um, there might be part of that in it, uh, partly what I've read, you know, growing up. But, I, I mean, again, I don't plan them. I mean, in no quarter given, the first fight scene with Connor, I knew I had an inkling that I wanted to get to a fight scene. So one developed. Um, and I went from there. But the choreographing of it, it's just basically you get, you know, you think about the characters in a position that you just map it out in your mind. Mm -hmm. If somebody throws this punch, how would somebody who is trained the way Connor is block that and then counter it, et cetera, et cetera. And I've done a bit of boxing. I've done a bit of martial arts in my time and stuff. I'm doing, you know, boxing and kickboxing lessons at the moment mm -hmm. um, because I'm so zen-like and calm that these are yeah. the things that appeal to me. So you just basically take that and you apply that into the, book and kind of you block it out in your head write it down and then when you've written it down read it back and see does it make sense you know because it wouldn't make sense if say for example connor threw a left hook and somebody blocked that and then hit them with the same block so you'd have to break the fight down i suppose it's like choreography mm. it's like they do in movies you just break it down to if this happens does that happen does that happen and then does that happen right that works Enjoy writing these scenes? Yes and no. Um, I enjoy having, again, we'll go back to the, I enjoy having written. I enjoy having got them right, if that makes sense, where people like yourself say, you write a good fight scene, or Caro Ramsey said that as well. Um, I and enjoy Ca that. And Caro knows, Caro Ramsey knows her <laughs> fight scene. Yeah, I'm taking that as a compliment, a very big compliment. Um <laughs> But sometimes it is difficult getting it right. And it is a very kind of stilted process because you've got to stop and think if somebody throws a left hook and then somebody faints and they block and parry, would they then throw an uppercut, a jab? What are you trying to do here? Is the person, like, for example, Connor always wants to end a fight quickly. Mm -hmm. He's not there to kind of torture somebody in a fight. He just wants to get in. And if he has to fight, he'll do it quickly. Yeah. What's the most effective way to do that? So blocking it out does take a while. And I have seen me dancing around the study kind of shadow box and going, if that works, does that work? Does that work? Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of stilted way to do it. But there is a satisfaction, as we talked about earlier on, of getting it right when you've written the scene. Yeah, I had the same approach with David McCall. Yeah. Uh, and that, that I decided that, that character would, there wouldn't be these long, there is a couple of longer drawn out fight scenes. Um, but basically, when David goes in, it's, you know, it's to put an end to it as quickly as possible by any means necessary. Uh, and that, yeah. that was the whole notion there. So, yeah, I would do the same as well and, and think about it because, I, you know, I am Zen like. Um, <laughs> Of course, yeah. I, I am the Maharishi of Scottish crime writing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can often be seen, you know, sitting cross-legged and chanting. Uh, or is that cross-legged on a chanting? I can't really remember. But, um, and, you know, trying to work out, you know, how this fight scene would go. I remember writing one in which it, I had him taking on two guys mm. uh, and he had he used an umbrella uh, that he'd taken from somebody. Um, uh -huh. And it was, it was how could he use his umbrella? What would he do with it? And and I suppose if you th thought about it, it's ridiculous, but I think it worked within the piece, you know, within the piece. So you've got, you, you know, you've got, why did you give Connor a background in Belfast? 
because that was a kind of, again, because I don't plan and I don't plot. Basically what happened was, as we've discussed, I went to bloody Scotland, we were watching the football game, and it just suddenly occurred to me, this would be a great place to dump a body. So I went for a walk, and I thought, right, this guy's going to have to deal with some pretty bad people. And I wanted somebody that was more physically imposing and more physically trained than Doug McGregor is. Doug is a reporter who spends his life, you know, investigating things very cerebrally. I wanted a more visceral character. Right, this guy's going to need firearms at some point. He's going to need a certain amount of self-defense training, martial arts training. Right, okay. What brands of, or, uh, and, and a knowledge of law enforcement, but I don't want it to be a cop. Right, okay, so what have we got? Who gets law enforcement training, gets enhanced self-defense training and gets standard firearm training. Ah, Belfast police officers or PSNI officers. Mm. Right. I spent time as a student in Belfast. I liked Belfast. I always wanted to get back and write something about Belfast. Tick. So that was it. And then it just kind of evolved from there, you know, to give him a background with a grandfather who, instead of getting involved in the troubles, was an amateur bodybuilder. Right. Mm. So that means that Connor would know how to train because he studied in Belfast went to visit his granddad at the weekends and his granddad imparted all his knowledge to him. Right, okay, there's another box tick. And it just kind of grew layers on layers from there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, <clears throat> you did an earlier podcast uh, in which mm-hmm. you were asked about Jack Reacher and it occurs to me, you know, who would win a fight between, you know, between Connor and Jack Reacher, do you think? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Mr. Lee Child, sir, would that's that's me down and bending knee again. Um, oh, oh, somebody didn't like that. That's a, that's a yeah. Mickey, Mickey disagrees. <laughs> um, the simple answer is I don't. Okay, here's the question, and this is something interesting: Is he fighting Jack Reacher as he is now, or is he fighting Jack Reacher in his? Well, take your pick. (laughs) Reacher was in his 50s to a certain book. And then he started kind of blurring the background and stuff. I think it would be a pretty hard hard one fight. God knows who would win that one, Mm. in all honesty. Reacher, probably, because he's got the experience. He's got how many books in? And Connor's only got four? Yeah. Well, that means Connor's fresh. And who would win a fight between Connor and Miss Marple, do you think? <laughs> Miss Marple. Miss Marple, definitely. <laughs> uh, watch the old women, they cheat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> watch out for those needles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we, we're both part of uh, Four Blokes in, in Search of a Plot. Have have you missed doing that over the past year and a half? Doing it live, we've done a couple of of uh, digital events, but it's really not the same. No, it's not, and I think that's what I've missed is the audience interaction. I mean, the four blokes works because you know, for for listeners who don't know what the four blokes are, basically it's myself, Douglas, uh, Mark Leggett, and Gordon Brown. We go on stage with the fabled tea cozy of inspiration. The audience gives us a protagonist and a murder weapon, and then the four of us bounce it between ourselves to write a story within an hour. It's not high literature by any means. It's probably farce more than anything else. 
you've had cozy crime now, chaos crime. It's tea cozy um, crime. But, <laughs> yeah, tea cozy crime. But we should get that on a t-shirt, actually. That's quite good. Um, but you know, I think the thing that I missed, and I, I saw it most keenly. Remember when we did Dunfries? Yeah. Yeah. And the audience were laughing their heads off and stuff. And you were feeding off that, mm. but you were bantering with the audience. And as much as Zoom, you know, and online stuff, other online meeting portals are available, mm. has been brilliant throughout the pandemic in keeping people connected and acting as a life support mechanism for festivals that have gone virtual, for stuff like the Four Blokes. It's not the same as being in a room and bouncing off an audience. Mm. And that's what I've missed is that ability to, you know, sit down and get that instant interaction of that worked, that didn't work, and getting that back and forth and having a conversation with people. Mm-hmm. We've had a gig that's been rearranged, I think, about four times now. It, yeah. was, it was originally going to be part of the, the Glasgow International Comedy Festival, and that didn't happen because 2020 happened. And then it was rearranged for later in the year. That didn't happen. Then rearranged again. Then rearranged again for September this year. We didn't go ahead with that because things were still a bit dicey. Now it's been rearranged for, I think, February 2022. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, well, kind of hoping that it does does go ahead this time. So quite looking forward to, to getting back onto that because I agree with you. I think we need that connection with the audience. It makes it makes the whole event breathe and live in a way that being on screen just just doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that not just with the four blokes, but last week I was at Waterstones in Edinburgh, where I was chairing Craig Russell, who mm-hmm. won um, the McIlvany Prize for Hyde, mm-hmm. and the difference between. Chairing, I mean, we've both chaired events for festivals virtually during the pandemic, but the difference between chairing a panel online or chairing an author online and actually being in a bookshop with a real audience, the difference was night and day. It was brilliant to be back. Yeah. Yeah. Any other live events that you've got coming up that you think of? Um, hopefully. I'm doing Noir at the Bar. Um, oh yes, yes. I forgot. Helen Fields is let out of therapy. Yeah. Um, in fact, you're doing that as well, aren't you? Uh, yes, I am. I am. Yes. So it's me, you, Helen, and Ka- Carol Ramsey, Michael J. Malone, and yep. Leslie Kelly. That's right. Um, so we're doing that on the 25th of November in Edinburgh at the Rose Street Theatre. Yeah. Um, and other than that, that's it at the moment. Well, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's 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 kind of dying down. It'll be next year. We've got Book Week Scotland um, to to come, but after that, it, it does kind of die down uh, f- for anything. And yeah. uh, so, Neil, thank you very much for coming on to Spooks. Well, thank you for having me, sir. Do you want to tell us again the name of the book and when it's coming out? It is no quarter given. It will be out in hardback and audiobook on the 9th of November. And I hope you all enjoy it. Yes, rush out and buy it. Thanks, Neil. Thanks a lot, Douglas. You take care. And there we have it. 
little old Nasser to Neil Broadfoot. And can I just say that the, the book is very, very good, very tight, very taut, very pacey. And if you want that kind of read, this is ideal for you. So go out and buy it or pre-order it now if you're listening ahead of the publication date. You won't be disappointed. In fact, if you haven't read any of Neil's books, I would recommend that you do so. Okay, that's it for this particular episode of Spooks. We can only hope that Denzel will be back for the next edition. Uh, So until then, this is Douglas Skelton saying goodbye. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Spooks was a Houses of Steel production. Thank you.